This podcast is a London Business School lecture with Herminia Ibarra, Professor of Organisational Behaviour, and Charles Handy Chair in Organisational Behaviour at London Business School. Professor Ibarra urges you to think about what kind of leader you would like to be and to take action. You can read more in her latest book, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm going to talk about my um, last book called Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader, and hopefully the, the mystery of why it is act, think, rather than the other way around, hopefully, will get revealed. Uh, there's a headline, the, the one takeaway. I would like to start with the takeaway, so it's pretty clear what it is I want you to walk away with. The headline is, what well, God can hear won't get you there. Uh, this is a title, a phrase you've heard before, meaning some meaning for you. Well, I'm going to bet that uh, for most of us, uh, especially if we're here, that means that uh, you're somewhere in uh, what I call and what got you here won't get you there transition. Yes? There'll be a different set of skills and competencies that you need in that new role. Okay? So fantastic. That's a big part of it, knowing that when you shift roles, chances you tend to get promoted because you've done well in what you've done before, but you get promoted or moved into something new, sometimes bigger, and it's a different skill set. And we'll, 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 we'll talk about that. There's a lot of research that shows that no matter where you are, Usually these kind of moving into a bigger role transitions involve moving from influencing, motivating, persuading on the basis of what you know, your specialty expertise, to a kind of a broader package that includes a strategic perspective, a kind of a big picture connect the dots view, as well as the soft skills that have to do with often influence without authority. Okay, so now interesting, the examples you've given have to do with changing jobs and changing roles. One of the things that I found in my own research is that today you really don't have the luxury of waiting until you're in a new assignment to have what got you here won't get you there problem. In fact, it's part of it is identifying that you're in that situation because, um, you know, face it, our organizations are changing very quickly. A lot of them are streamlining, that means more things end up on your plate. People who have gone haven't been replaced. You've got more to do. We're all dealing with technical disruption. I can make quite a long list. But if you've been in your own role for, say, a couple of years, chances are what being expected of you is different than what was expected a couple of years back when you started. Does that resonate? Yeah. And then, obviously, the clincher here is that what gets us into trouble most of the time is more what we do well rather than what our weaknesses are. And it's interesting, we can talk about it more later, but we've had um, probably a very solid decade of very interesting research on positive psychology that says focus on your strengths and build from your strengths, which is good to do, but not exclusively so, <laughs> according to this model, because your strengths will probably not get you to where you want to go next. Maybe, maybe they will, but not always. So that, that's, kind of, that's kind of the model. It's not very controversial. Um, but even though we know these things, and all your heads and body, I don't think anybody wants to violently disagree with me, the fact remains that it's incredibly hard to do. Um, and the reason why it's hard to do is what I'm going to focus on. It's because we go about it the wrong way. Okay? So what I'm going to focus on is how it is that we make this transition. That's what I've studied people uh, going through. Just be yourself. Now, that's a great one. Precisely the problem is that I was myself. Too much myself. Too, too introverted, too nerdy, too academic, not, you know, too untied to the business. You know what I mean? It was, what do you do with that kind of feedback? Um, 
And so this is the problem of learning. Where do you get the feedback? And actually, how do you learn things that are really intangible and have to do with being more confident before you can be? And it it have to do really with the essence of who you are, which you don't necessarily want to change or know if you can. And um, the, you know, one of the, this is always very retrospective, but one of the moments that I remember started to turn this around was when one of my, um, shall we say, not very politically correct or the least politically correct colleague came to watch me and uh, give me a little, a little feedback. And he said, he said, uh, you know, he sat through my whole class like all the other ones and took lots of copious notes about what I was doing and what wasn't working and, you know, everything else. You can see how miserable the experience was. But after the class, he came up to me and he said, you know what, Armenia, I can tell immediately what's wrong. It's so obvious. He said, you're walking in there like if this was all about the content of what you have to deliver to these people. And he said, you know, let me tell you, this is nothing, nothing to do with the content whatsoever. He said, you know, this is an arena. It's about power and turf. And when you walk in there, he said, when you walk in behind the desk, close to your notes, you know, kind of cringing there. When you walk in there, you've got to make it crystal clear to each and every one of those students that this is your room and it's not theirs. And that's not easy to do. You're going to have to strategize it because they're there all day, every day of the year. In fact, in those days, they used to camp out the night before to be able to get those seats in the back, which were the prime real estate. Um, <laughs> and he says, so, you know, if you try to strategize this, what can you do to own that room? And he says, but basically, I'm not going to mince words. You've got to be a dog. You've got to be a dog, Hermenia. And that means that you go and mark your territory in each of the four corners of that room. So what happened was eventually I got desperate enough to try it because, you know, <laughs> by the way, my preferred alternative strategy was staying up all night over preparing, right? <laughs> Just learn more stuff, have, be more bulletproof, have more facts and figures. And we often do that when we're feeling insecure, but you know that's not what's going to fix it, more of the same. You know, that's the definition of insanity. Uh, but we do it because it's who we are. So anyway, eventually I got desperate enough. Not right away, not immediately, not immediately. I got some immediate effects. I got their attention, something I didn't have before. It's not so really helpful. I definitely got their attention. Um, I started to build more relationships with them. Some of them were abused. It had, you know, kind of it opened the door to having more of a conversation. Um, it started to be a little more amusing, I have to say. It kind of starts to bring out maybe, you know, we all have a little Machiavellian spark. Mine was very suppressed and brought that out. And it was, you know, I wasn't having fun. It was, it was just not fun at all. So it kind of loosened things up. Um, but over time, it did make a huge difference. Now, I'm not going to, I don't know how long it took. I tried other things. But ultimately, there were two things that changed very dramatically. And it was the same two things that I saw changing in the managers that I studied, making big work on you here and we'll get you their transitions. The two things that changed was, one is my definition of what the job was, or my understanding of what I was there to do. What is my job? Before I thought my job was to create a good course and deliver it. What do they need to know, right? This actually made me think my job is to create an environment in which people are wanting to learn and want to participate with me and with each other. And if it takes a little infotainment every once in a while, why not? Because I've seen my colleagues. And you know what? 
the guy, literally, the guy who was teaching love, this is to me the same course, he was um, teaching organizational behavior doing Elvis impersonations. And he jumped up, and he, he could do it. He could do this kind of hop up onto the desk. I couldn't do it. Anyway, I thought, oh, that was stupid. He was dumbing it down. You know, what's the point? But in fact, I never did do the Elvis impersonations. That's harder to do in a skirt. Um, but but I, um, I came to see that there was some value in some of the theatrics and some of the things that created a bit of fun in the room. But all of a sudden, my definition of what the job was very different. My definition of who I was and who I wanted to become also started to change. It's the who you want to become. Because we think of identity as who we've been historically, or maybe who we are today. But there's been wonderful research that shows that a huge part of our identity is our projection about who we might become in the future, our possible selves. And um, I started to see a possible self, somebody who could be effective and who could enjoy that. Who could enjoy that. And before those things didn't work, because I didn't want to be any of those people, as I was just watching them at a distance rather than talking about. Now, moral of the story, it's a long story to make a point, but it's, it is a key point, is when we, when we try to help people change, or when we embark on a process where we're trying to do one of these what got you here won't get you there transitions, what we want to do is what we've always done as good students. We want to analyze it, figure out what's B, where I want to get to, what the objective is, what the goal, so I'm at A, and then just implement, execute, just do it, right? This is the kind of leader I want to be, I need to delegate more. Or this is the kind of professor I need to be, I need to use more humor, or whatever it is. And a lot of the methods that we in business schools, in the business world, in our books have propagated, are not very helpful when it comes to those transitions because they get us introspecting, reflecting on the past, and that's not where the answer is because if you're one of these, you haven't done it before. So you don't have the base of experience inside you. I could have never introspected what kind of a professor or instructor do I want. I could have never thought of that. I had to try a bunch of different things, act, then think, try a bunch of different things that change what I do, and ultimately, through my own experience, change my mind. Because in all of these things, what we're trying to get at is to change our mindsets. The real mindsets, not the things we say theoretically, I should be delegating more. No, the real mindset is, I have to deliver something perfect, and it only comes out perfect when I do it. <laughs> That's the real mindset. And the only way you tackle those things is by creating your own experience that then changes the way that you think. It's not ever going to be the other way around. And by the way, it's a moving target, because once you start doing new and different things, it actually changes your view of what it is that you want to achieve because it's more grounded. By the way, today we call that design thinking, which is being applied more and more to people in our own careers. It's the fast prototyping, fail fast, move on to something else, pivot, applied to the person. And so the idea that I came up with to encapsulate this is that rather than trying to make these transitions on the basis of generating introspective insights, what we want to do is create outside, generate outside, fresh perspective that you get from doing new and different things with new and different people. Learn new things, get new experiences that maybe you can reflect on. I'm not saying reflection isn't good. I'm saying there are moments when you need a new base of experience in order to reflect. Does that make sense? So the rest of the time we're going to spend together, I want to talk to you about what I learned creates outside and what are the three areas, the three levers that you have to work with 
in order to generate that. And by the way, there are also the three traps that you can fall into. They are, how do you redefine your job so you can make more strategic contributions, so you can get a better mix of exploiting what you already know and exploring learning new things? How do you expand your network so that you can connect to and learn from a more diverse range of stakeholders? These two things are two sides of a coin. What you do affects who you're in contact with, affects a large portion of your network. And your network brings you opportunities, affects very much what it is that you do. So they're, they're flip sides. We're going to focus on that first, because you spend all your time at your job. If you spend all your time like me, stay, staying up all night over preparing, then of course nothing's going to change. And so a lot of times, um, the dominant style is to say, let's look at your leadership style. Well, let's look at that last. Let's look at that last. Let's look at what you're doing first, because that is the context in which you either repeat yourself or explore new ways of doing things. Um, but the third piece I call being more playful with your sense of self so that you can allow yourself to do things that are hugely unnatural, like marking the four corners of the room, but for the sake of learning and fine-tuning. Okay? I'm going to talk about how you spend your time first. This is not always working very well. How do you spend your time? Um, interesting, this used to be a huge topic of research in my field of leadership, and there was tons of work that was done on this in like the 70s, up in the 70s, and not much has done since. So we started with a colleague polling some of our executives about how they're spending their time. And this is, this is not a scientific instrument, but it was just a vehicle for discussion. We asked people, if you were to bucket how you spend your time into, and obviously the biggest share goes to meetings, unfortunately, but. <laughs> Stuff you do yourself, this is what we call mobilizing, which is trying to get by and trying to get people to do things. Um, you know, it could be one-on-one, -on -one, could be in a group, but just trying to get them to do things. This is strategizing, and this is developing, developing people. So, you know, not an exhaustive list, but we ask people, how do, how do you bucket your time, and where do you think you're getting bigger chunks, and where are you not getting enough? What do you think, this, and this poll came from a group of C-suite level executives, this is pretty senior people, which do you think they spent the most time on? Bingo. Bingo. We were surprised at first, actually, because these are pretty senior people, but doing was getting the, the bulk of their time. This, the runner-up was mobilizing, okay? Runner-up was mobilizing. Doing was getting the bulk of their time. Which do you think they, across the board, they regretted not spending more time on? people and I heard strategizing. It was strategizing. With the people, uh, you've probably seen this, there are people who are natural people persons and they, they like it, they enjoy it, they do it, um, and, some, and some don't. So the one that universally, you know, 95% of us don't do more of is the strategizing. You know, this is kind of like the, the Steve Covey uh, quadrant. Remember he had that two by two, urgent by important. So we spend our time on the urgent, not so important to the detriment of the important, not urgent. That's, this is the question. So uniformly people said, I'm not giving this enough time. Now, remember back to the what got you here, we'll get to their transition. This is a huge part of it, and not just with regard to capital S strategy of your firm, because not all of us have decision rights over that. But strategizing here means strategizing relative to my team, my unit, my group, where should we be placing our energy and resources? Because we have some sense of a landscape that makes it better to do this and not that. 
And this is strategizing relative to myself and my development and where am I going next, but really thinking with a different time horizon and thinking relative to a competitive landscape. That's what that means, right? Now, why is it that we uniformly say we don't give this enough time? And how, how does it manifest itself? You say to yourself, what do you say to yourself? I don't have time to think. I don't have time to think. Right? So why is it? What means, apart from our companies having short-term pressures and quarterly reports, you know, all that stuff, all, all that is there. But why is it that we don't devote more time to the thing that we say is so incredibly important? How come? Risk. Risk? Who said risk? What risk of what? Okay, so you're pushing the ball on a groove that's already been established. It was, you didn't do it, but if you say we should actually go this way, you've stuck your head on it. It could be wrong. Yeah, there's more risk in that, absolutely. Now, there, we'll talk about how you mitigate risk, how you increase the likelihood that you're going to suggest is actually a good way to go. The interesting thing about risk is we always underestimate the risk of not changing, of not doing anything, of not you know, saying the course. That itself has, can have very big risks, right? But that's one. There's hmm? a massive pressure on short-term and targets versus Absol long-term. Absolutely. There is. In your companies, put all of you in a body because they have massive pressure on you for short-term results. At the same time, how many are in companies that have a nine-box system that value to potential? Okay, fewer. So at the same time, if they're trying to, for example, create growth out of kind of hard-to-growth time, they actually also want you to think longer term because the growth isn't going to come from those needed. So they're putting you in a bind, but they do want some of that. So two key things in what you said, very important. One is there isn't necessarily designated time unless you designate it, whereas for a lot of other things, we kind of fit into the group. Our company has to have to go to this meeting, you have to do that. So you have to take more initiative. The second thing is exactly what you said. Strategizing is not really a discrete activity. I have lots of colleagues in strategy who have written about the fact that the least strategic thing we tend to do in companies is having the annual strategy meeting or the quarterly strategy meeting, because not, not much strategy happens there. It's an ongoing activity, a mindset, a way of thinking, and a way of going about your work. I mean, think about it this way. It's, it's a really key point. Um, the thought experiment that I like to have people make is, um, you know the company Dropbox, we all have Dropbox. One of the things that's put Dropbox in the headlines in the last couple of years is they've decided they want to eradicate meetings that are time inefficient. What a dream, right? And because they're a technology company, what they do is they have software that pulls the meetings out of your calendar. They actually, you try, people, and people try because they want to have some kind of prescribed rules, and they set up uh, meetings, and then the, the algorithm pulls them out of the calendar because you're not supposed to. It's only very specific kinds of things are allowed. you're allowed to have meetings around. So if you do the thought experiment, say you work at Dropbox, and the next, today's Friday, so that's no good. Say Monday and Tuesday, the algorithm took all your meetings out, and you've got those two days reserved for strategizing. What are you going to do? What are you We're it's in part because we don't know what it means. And we don't know what, I mean, we crave that time to think, but after you've thought for a few minutes, you're like, I'm not doing anything, I'm not productive, What's, right? And so the key here is how to incorporate strategizing as a regular activity into our day-to-day -day lives and how to create nooks and crannies and spaces, but actually inform what it is that we're trying to accomplish. 
So um, as we dug a little bit deeper, we found a couple of, couple of um, at least insights that are helpful with this issue. The first is that one of the things that really gets in the way is what I call competency traps. <laughs> competency, competency traps, we all know that we're all good. This is the problem with the strengths-based uh, approach. We're all really good at certain things. And then when you're good at something, people come to you for it, and you become the go-to person for that thing. And even if you try to change and you move down to somewhere else, you remain forever in their minds the go-to person for this. They do not let you go. And so what happens over time is the opportunity cost of doing something else gets higher and higher and higher, right? And that's why, that's one of the reasons why we don't delegate, because you just say, gosh, you could do it so much faster, so much better if I just do it myself, <laughs> right? And so, and this is the trick, it becomes, it becomes, it becomes a trap. It becomes a trap because that expertise could become less relevant, it could be disconnected from other things, and more than anything else, it keeps you from learning new stuff. Because what do you get up and do first thing in the morning, for example? Or what do you, sports coaches talk about this all the time, we love to practice our best swing, whatever it is. What I, you know, we go for that feel good, I'm confident, I, I get in the zone, I know how to do it. The other stuff, it's awkward, I don't know where to start, I'm not set up, you know, it just doesn't feel so good. So we have to start thinking about what can help us. Can you all think about what's a competency trap for yourself? The stuff that you do? Yeah? I, had a, I hired a publicist and that generated a lot of um, requests for writing short articles, uh, most of which were not particularly you know, innovative, they were just working off the book. And so I said, all right, fine, I'm gonna hire somebody to do some of this writing for me. It's my, you know. And so I did. I hired somebody, and it's somebody whose work I had seen and hope it's I knew. So I said, finally, I'm gonna be delegating stuff. So I free up some time for some other things. And guess what happened? She couldn't read my mind. And I pulled it. I said, I can do it so much faster, better myself. <laughs> I mean, of course, it works for the, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, but not the 20th time. You know, ultimately, you have to learn how to do it. So anyway, I know what I'm talking about. So we started looking at what helps us get out of these. We started to see that really two very different ways you could define any job, any job. One way we call the hub. And when you're the hub, it's kind of you're at the center of what's happening in the project, in the unit, in the team, in the organization. Kind of all roads lead to you, and you really, the buck stops with you for all the important things, material, leadership, what have you, you're at the center of it. Another way to define a job is what I call a bridge. And when you're being a bridge, you're a connector, you're a LinkedIn, and you're kind of running an import-export function where you have one foot in your unit and the other foot in its relevant ecosystem. And your job is to make sure that your unit gets fed what it needs and that it exports what's going to help it continue to grow. And that could be talent, resources, funding, uh, reputation, uh, political alliances, whatever it is that it needs, it, you're, you're making sure it's coming in. And other people maybe are handling kind of how what gets, how the work gets structured, how, what kind of morale you have in the group, but you're there to make sure the group gets fed what it needs, and you're gonna export, you know, selective messages about what great stuff you're doing, you're gonna make sure that people who have worked there get to go on and do great things, but you're running an import-export function. 
right? Now, when you're working out of a competency trap, because this is much more competency-based, and if your organization is kind of siloed, this gets much worse, obviously. The minute that you start tweaking your job, your own job description, your own definition of what you should be doing, or your own definition of what you and only you can do, what you really can't delegate, is how to position it <coughs> in the system that feeds it. Because all of our organizations are successful or not due to their placement in a broader environment. It's very hard to have success in an encapsulated way. The minute you start defining your job as being a bridge, you cannot stay in the competency trap because you see immediately other requirements, other things that need to be done, ways in which you can contextualize your competency, nourish it with other things, team it, put it together with others. And all of a sudden, by the way, the delegation problem becomes easier because you discover new and different things that are more fun, that are more interesting, that are higher impact. In the minute you've got something else you want to do at that time, it is infinitely easier to delegate. Right? We just hoard it when that's, that's what we spend our time on. And that's, by the way, the only way, the only way we get the vision thing, which has been kind of like the holy grail of the leadership. And vision is not charisma, it's not anything mystical, it just means the capacity to see out and beyond, to see what's out there, to sense what's happening, so that you can feed your decision-making process with reality, <laughs> with possibility, with dangers, with threats, with opportunities in the environment, and then inspire others to also come on board. A lot of this really depends on how it is that you define your work. So I'm going to summarize a little bit the first bit, which is going to get a little bit to your point. What does this all mean? And what it means is you really should be thinking about your job as a portfolio. And in a portfolio, you want some things that are going to allow you to exploit what you do well, because that's how you add value. But you want to create some room to learn some new things. And those new things that you want to learn are probably going to be things that are going to help you have a better strategic outlook. So where can you play more bridge roles? Where can you free up some time? Um, sometimes they're outside your organization, in a professional association. You know, I make sure to go to a conference outside my field every year because otherwise I don't know what's happening. You know, what are those things that you do that help you do that? But usually that means that you've got to give up some of the stuff that you were doing already because time is finite. So how do you expand that out? <laughs> See, this is the, the, this is the key thing. Two, two things there. Ultimately... One of the reasons why we don't do more of the strategizing as well is because we think the only way of adding value is by doing concrete, tangible things that show immediate results and that you can point your name towards. Because otherwise, I'm a, I'm a facilitator, I'm a coach, I'm an orchestrator. What is my actual role? That's part of the transition is to move towards less tangible work. Now, you don't make it in one go. That's part of it. We're talking about freeing up some time. And the other thing is, Part of what you're doing is developing capacity in other people so that the tangible gets done. It's not that it doesn't get done, but what you're getting credit for, this is as you go up the leadership hierarchy, what you're getting credit for is facilitating the work that has to be done. It's still, you're still accountable for it, and you're always going to do some portion of it yourself. I mean, today, we retain some of the doing fairly, fairly high up. But the question is what the proportions are and how do you play around so you get a sense of what that means and how it could feel 
more satisfied. Yeah? But that's that's something that we all go through. And that's that's kind of what we're battling with in the competency trap. But yeah, and so how many years are you gonna measure your success by that? And after, you know, after how long are you actually writing the same article with a different title? And you know, so that's that's kind of the mindset change that has to happen. And it happens by doing some new and experimenting around it. Let me get to the flip side of the coin, which is your network. How important is having a good network to your effectiveness as a leader? Your networks help you understand what's going on politically, strategically, ties to the people who are going to approve it, who have to buy in, the right talent, it helps you avoid groupthink, make better decisions, generate innovative, all these things happen through networks. There's a lot of good research that shows that you know, the way we get things done past a certain level, you know, we're not talking about the technical expertise level, we're talking about management and leadership is through networks. And so people are naturals at this. I did my PhD dissertation research in the 1980s on networks um, and how they affect innovation in organizations and how people position themselves in networks. And I've been teaching on this for almost 30 years. And I can tell you that most people think it's important, but don't do it very well and don't devote much time to it. A bit like the strategizing. It's another one of those. And so the question is, why is that gap? Why is it that we think it's important, but ours are not very good? And when ours are not very good, it usually means we haven't devoted that much time and energy to it. You spend some time developing some relationships. You have no idea. Is it going to pay off? Is that person going to be helpful? Are you going to be helpful to them? You have no idea. It's a longer time horizon, and you don't know what the payoff is going to be. Yeah. That we think that what's needed for a good network is something that is not necessarily what is most associated with having one. So I'll talk about that. Um, one of the big issues here, actually, beyond having enough time and beyond things like what you kind of came to the world with, is that um, as human beings, we're not necessarily kind of natural-born networkers. So I'm going to start with that, because it's, it's been something that was puzzling me for years, is how much people struggled with something that was so obviously critical. And so I started to have a oops, sorry, I'll come back to you in a minute. When I have a look at, um, there's been a lot of research in social psychology that talks about um, what makes us um, click enough with somebody when we need them to say, hey, you know, let's have coffee, you know, in the next couple of weeks, or let's go for lunch, or we really, we really have to stay in touch and actually make it happen, right? And so I want you to tell me what you think this research says that creates that, e that enough, because this is all about discretionary relationships, creates enough of that click that you want to stay in touch. Is it intelligence, attractiveness, not just physical beauty, that includes charisma, similarity, frequent contact, or power status? What, what makes us uh, want to just really connect and say, this is somebody who I, I really want to get to know better. It's not true that opposites attract. It's similar. Birds of a feather flock together. Similarity attracts. And it is, it's been shown in so many different kinds of research. Uh, one of the most pitiful ones is research on what happens in job interviews, where if in the first few minutes you manage to establish some common ground, as in, you know, oh, where'd you go to school? Oh, you went to the University of Miami as well. Oh, fantastic. Did you know this person? And all of a sudden, it's a completely different conversation because you have benefit of the doubt and you have common ground. Right? Similarity is huge. Um, and obviously, it gets in the way of the one thing we need in our networks, which is breadth and diversity. And we're not conscious of the extent to which 
that is the case. And it could be on anything. You know, think of the cocktail party you go to, you don't know anybody, you see somebody from your work, you've never want to talk to Claire to begin with at work, but because <laughs> she is the one like you at this place where you, otherwise you'd have to walk around with your glass of wine, I'm going to go talk to Claire rather than brave going to talk to somebody that I don't know. At INSEAD, where I, I, I was uh, recently, <laughs> INSEAD's a funny business school in that it's not tied to France. The original campus is in France, now there's others. It's not tied to France, and so it's not a French school in any way. It was originally founded by French, uh, English, and Germans. And so from the beginning, they had a quota, so you could never have any national majority of any kind, because they didn't want to be like the US business schools where you have 75% US and 25% international. And so at some point, the cap became 13% in the MBA program, which still exists today. So you don't have more than 13% French students, even though you are in France, or no more than 13% US, the big groups. And it is a huge part of the DNA that they talk about, I and mean, we all talk about how global they are, but they make a big deal out of this because of the origins of the school. And you're more apt to find what it is that you actually have at a less superficial level in common, and you can build a relationship. I call this the narcissism principle. <laughs> and the thing is, and this is, social psychologists hate how I summarize their research, but we're narcissistic and we're lazy. Because the second principle is proximity, and the research shows us, well, we get to know, we get to like people who are really easy to get to know and get to like because we're busy and their office is right next door, and so it doesn't cost me any to get to know Frederick because, you know, I'm at the coffee machine anyhow, and by the sixth conversation, you know, we're brother and sister, we, you know, it's, you have so much in common, it's crazy. But left to our own devices, you really look at the research closely, that's what happens. And that's why we get very limited. And when our organizations are siloed, it's even worse because if his office is next door to me, chances are he's in the same specialty area as well. And we reproduce our own thought process and we're with people who can complete our sentences. And on top of that, we don't want to get too strategic about this anyhow. This is my other slide that I flashed up too quickly because we don't want to be this guy. This guy is really sleazy. It's, it's not right to be so strategic, so manipulative about building our networks. And I often hear this particularly from younger people, and particularly when it has to do with using networks to build up your career, when it's for me but not for the firm. Because we all know people who got ahead like this and we don't like it. The fact of the matter, though, is if we don't pay attention, particularly when you're at those we'll got you here, we'll get you there moments, to what is your network, and is it going to help you grow and move forward? Because past a certain level, we're not going to be rocket scientists anymore. We're not going to start in a new area of engineering. It's not going to be about the substance. It's going to be about who can help you learn the more intangible things, frame, persuade, and change. And here's what you need in your networks. You need breath, connectivity, dynamism. I'm going to go through these a little bit quickly so we can talk about the last dimension as well. Breath is very obvious. When I do a diagnostic with my students in executive education, what comes out is that critical mass tends to be inside your company, inside your functional specialty, inside your business unit, often very little inside your company but in other areas. That's usually the poorest. Um, we tend to have blind spots. We don't do 360. We tend not to talk too much to people who are younger and more junior about things that matter. We tend to network upwards too much when in fact the value we add is by having peers in different areas that give us perspective and then allow us 
to add value differently to the people who are more senior than us. But external is a key word here. Second dimension I call connectivity, and that has to do not with who you know, but what's the structure overall of the network? How do those people hang together? In some networks, these are two prototypes. In some networks, they're more a cohesive, tight circle of people who tend to know each other and have known each other well. And it's, you know, this here I'm talking about kind of your core network, not the entire thing. This network is tighter, more cohesive. The people that you really rely on also tend to know each other. This network is more widespread. These people who are kind of your core kitchen cabinet may not necessarily all know each other. And in fact, they tend to be doorways to different networks. This is more the six degrees of separation principle that social media are based on. Now, which of the two is going to be more helpful to you as a leader, the cohesive or the widespread? This is a, a gross simplification. Ideally, you want your tight circle, and then kind of, you, you, you want both. But what happens, and this is to the point I was making, well, especially when we've been in the company for too long, especially when we've gotten really busy, this is, it tends towards this. It comes quite inbred. The technical term for this in network analysis, for this kind of network, is called redundant. Now, I like that word because it means that's, that's essentially what happens to you. If everybody, kind of your tight circle, if they all know each other and we pull you out, nothing gets lost. You are redundant because people can get the same information from anybody else there. And so we've got to watch out for that. By the way, this is also what happens today. Um, in those kind of bubbles where people share the same political views and then we have no idea how other people think and we, <laughs> we mispredict how votes are going to go because we're all each in our own bubbles, right? Oh, right, so I want to talk a little bit about this. Um, the, the pioneer in research on this idea of connectivity and the tight networks where this is widespread was a guy named Sally Milgram who was a psychologist at Harvard in the 50s. He was more famous for the electroshock experiments. If you study psychology, he was more famous for that. But he did a very famous study that led to the notion of six degrees of separation. That was called the small world studies. And the first of the studies, it's been replicated since. Uh, Facebook did it recently, and now we're at 4.6 degrees of separation, not six. Uh, but he took a bunch of people in Nebraska and he gave them letters that had to go to a stockbroker in Boston. And you could only send a letter to somebody you actually knew. And so he found that it never took more than six jumps to get to the stockbroker in Boston, hence six degrees of separation. What people forgot about those studies, and we still see today, is that most of the letters actually never got to the stockbroker because they never got out of the bus. <laughs> People's networks do not extend far enough, right? And we still see that. We see that in studies of social media and innovation. People who are following people who are mostly following each other are not as innovative as people who have more widespread networks in social media and so on and so forth. This is really critical because it's what allow us to add unique value because you're different. nobody can have the same networks as you. People can have the same internal knowledge of your organization can have similar expertise, but nobody's going to have the same network as you. And that's what allows you to add unique value and what allows you to see that there is an idea here and a need there, or a talented person here and a 
project that needs somebody like that there, and you add value by connecting the dots. The last of the pieces is related. How dynamic is your network? Is it always the same usual suspects that you're turning to when you need to know something, when you need advice, when you need to brainstorm? And this is really critical because a lot of the times what we're trying to do is change and evolve. And when you try to change and evolve, your network doesn't like it. The people who've known you forever, it's not that they don't mean well, but they'd rather keep you the way you've always been because that's what's familiar to them. And so this happens a lot. We kind of come back excited, we want to change the world, and this could be your team, your boss, could be your spouse, could be anybody. They're saying, if I just um, ignore him, if I ignore her, they'll just forget about it. Things can get back to normal very soon. We need fresh blood in our networks because we're trying to reinvent ourselves as well. So that's the second piece. Most of the time, we're not doing this at this level of strategy, but there are times in your career when you say, you know what, I better not just plan what role I want to be in or what skills I want to have, but who's going to help me get there? Who's going to help me get there? Because as adults, <laughs> at mid-career, all right, the last bit I call being more playful with yourself. If we're going to do new and different things, if we're going to reach out to different networks, Oftentimes, that's going to require that we actually do things differently. The how, the leadership style, the way we interact with people. And this is where it gets a little tricky. If you think about a lot of what we've talked about in the last 10 years on leadership, is we've talked a lot about the importance of authenticity, authentic leadership, being yourself. And that's really important. But if I look at my research, if I look at my own experience, and if I look at some of the executives that I teach, some of these, look, you know, we'll get to those situations, put you in a spot where you feel you've got a trade-off between being yourself and doing what it takes to be successful, right? Like when I had to go and you know, do what I demonstrated. And I, I, I want to give you a, a last example from, uh, not from an academic, but from, from a, a manager that I work with, a leader. Um, we're going to call her Anna, and she was, she was the CEO of a fairly large-sized transportation company, had been brought in from the outside, had turned it around and been successful. So the numbers were there, very clearly. But the problem with Anna, or the problem she was experiencing, is that she was in a huge stylistic clash with the, her chairman, who was the founder of the company, who was, so let's just use a prototype. Anna was a French engineer kind of by the numbers, uh, you know, none of that, walk around the room, tell a little story, you know, not, none of that stuff, just kind of cut and dry by the numbers. And the chairman was one of these folksy, shoot from the head, good sense of humor, kind of charismatic person. And he found her boring, and he, she was not... She, they were adding, they were at odds in the board meetings, in fact. They were not, they were not aligned. And it sounded like it was, it, the stylistic aspect was a big part of it. And I'm sure you've seen versions of this before. So I said to her, look, Anna, it sounds to me like what he's saying to you is that maybe he needs to get to know you a little bit better, needs to understand a bit more of the why of what's driving you, and maybe one thing you could try at one of the next meetings, instead of leading with the projections or the budget or what have you, maybe you could start telling a bit of a personal story about why this matters or about how you see the company, but something more from the heart. What do you think? 
This is what she said. We're in danger today of being mesmerized by people who play with our reptilian brain. For me, this is manipulation. I can do the storytelling, but I refuse to play on people's emotions. If the string is too obvious, I can't make myself do it. And I, could, I still remember her saying this. <laughs> now, here's the question. Is Anna being authentic? And so the question is, how do you tell the difference between being yourself and being rigid? And I find that this is a problem for people all the time, particularly as they're making the transition from leading, persuading, motivating on the basis of what they know, sticking to the facts, sticking to the analysis, having the right answer, to leading, motivating, persuading on the basis of convincing people who don't necessarily have the same background, who may be needed, said to them in a bit of a different way, who need their attention captured, right? but really struggle because what is not me. And so I'm going to end with this because we're running out of time, but we had to look really closely at how we define authenticity and how can we define it in a way that works. Because if authenticity is being true to yourself, surely it can't condemn you to being as you always have been. Surely it can't condemn you to learning something and changing as a result. You know, there's a kind of a, a conflict between being yourself as you always have been and getting out of your comfort zone. So you, our self can be a future self. Also, you know, there's situational leadership. There are places where, you know, if you're talking to people with the same training as you, I can go straight to the stats and I don't have to talk in three bullet points. But if I'm talking to a broader audience, I need to simplify so that they get the message. And I might use a story because we know it works. And the other thing is we think about it as being values-driven. Values-driven is important, right? We want to be true to the principles that we care about. But some of those principles sometimes come from a professional socialization, in her case being an engineer. And they get in the way of communicating with people who don't have the same. And so it's really important to, to kind of differentiate between what I call the little V values, which are precision, statistics, not overstating your case. If I did that, we never teach a group of MBAs because we don't have certainty. We have levels of probability at certain statistical levels, right? <laughs> so how can you separate out integrity from values that have to do with how we've been trained that might keep us from communicating more broadly? So I'm going to start wrapping up. You know, some of us are more camellias than others. Some of us are more natural uh, situational leaders than others. But what we have to avoid is this paradox where, in fact, when we feel that there's a conflict between who we are and what's required to succeed, and that what's required to succeed is very tied to old skills and competencies, and maybe we're a little ambivalent about what it's going to take, in fact, what often happens, we think we're being ourselves, but we become more rigid. We're not being ourselves, but we're being the maybe the, the fearful, less creative, more behind-the-desk version of ourselves, as opposed to the more expansive, out-there, trying-things version of who we might become. And these role transitions really require that, too. That's the intangible aspect. Anyway, wrap up. How can you be a little bit more playful? How can you give yourself permission to experiment outside the comfort and content zone? <laughs> um, and that means you've got to set learning goals, and you've got to see what role models are doing, and you've got to look for elements of style, and actually look for that, and pay attention to that, rather than the content. 
How do people establish presence? How do they establish dominance and authority? How do they establish approachability and contact? How do they do the things that we need to do when we sit in a boardroom and we've got to persuade and we know stuff is going on and it's not rational? How do we per se persuade when we're trying to lead change and there's real high stakes and people stand some things to lose? Not by the question, not by the answer, but by using ourselves, by using a broader repertory than what comes naturally. All right, these are the three messages I've given. Work on your job and how you define it. Work on your network. And don't just be yourself historically. Um, we know from research as adults, we're more likely to act our way into a new way of thinking rather than the other way around. And so that's a fancy way of saying just do it. <laughs> um, Act your way, act your way into it. Thank you very much. This lecture is from LBS Live at London Business School. Find out more about LBS's short courses at london.edu forward slash executive education. And for more fresh ideas from LBS's experts, visit london.edu forward slash LBSR.